Morning, everybody. How you doing? When you get your tithes and offerings in, you might want to look with me in the book of Ruth. I want your permission today to hit hard and run fast. Is that all right? Can we do that? Come on, don't wipe me now. Just come on with me. You know what I mean? Rob told me the secret. He said, well, when, the, when, when one of the white guys is preaching, they slow it down. I don't want that. You told me. That's what you told me. I'm just saying. I'm just saying. We're having fun. I know. I know. You're getting to look at it. I can't believe you started that way. I want to go after two things today in, in the broad themes I'm going to deal with. One's Valentine's Day kind of theme. And the other is Black History Month. And uh, I'm excited about doing both of those. So there's going to be a neck-breaking shift about halfway through this sermon. And um, we're going to have fun with it. So may the Lord add a blessing to the teaching of his word. I want to tell you a story out of the book of Ruth. I'm going to go ahead and jump right in even while we're taking the offering. Forgive me. Um, tell you a story out of the book of Ruth. And uh, then we'll apply it to our lives and see how it works down through the generations. Now, you probably know the story of Ruth. The story of Ruth is one of the great stories in the Bible uh, because it just shows how God reached outside of Israel, outside of the clean, pure people, to bring somebody unclean into the covenant. And so what, here's, here's the way it went. There was a woman named Naomi, and she was a Hebrew woman. And she was a woman living in Israel, and she was married. And she, there was a famine in the land. This was during the time of the judges. And so she went into Moab. Now, when you read in the Bible that they left their country and went into some distant country, uh, you know, we probably think it's like crossing a county line or like what happens down in D.C. on the metro. You know, the engineers will say, you're now in Virginia. You're now in D.C. It doesn't make any difference, but we're, they just like to announce it. Well, when, in the Bible, when you cross a county line, when you cross one of those lines, and the, and the Bible tells us they left this and went to that, it's usually a massive change. And so when the Bible says that this Hebrew couple went into Moab, you got to know they left the land of the presence of God and they went to Moab where they worshipped a demon named Chemosh. And the way you worshipped Chemosh was to sacrifice infants to it. And, it. and sometimes when you really wanted to make a big sacrifice, you sacrificed full-grown human beings. So when they say, when the Bible tells us that they left Israel, where there was a famine, to go into Moab for help, these pure Hebrew people, and Jewish religion at that time, this time all about what's pure, what's impure, being in the pure place, went into Moab, and they were living amongst a people who engaged in human sacrifice and drank blood. I'm not making it up. It's the way it is. You read in the Bible, they passed their children through the fire in honor of Molech. Molech was one of the gods in this part of the world. So human sacrifice, blood, sacrificing infants, that's what's going on there. You can imagine that a Hebrew couple is not going to be very happy there. But they stay there for a long time. It even gets a little worse. They have two sons. And since the famine back in Israel has not ended, those sons get old enough to marry. And they marry Moabite women. So now you've got a Hebrew mom and dad. And they've got two sons, and the dream of every Hebrew mom and dad is that they'll marry good Hebrew daughters, pure, clean, part of the covenant. But no, they marry Moabite women. Now think about this. Every time I say in this talk, Moabite women, you've got to think about women who grew up watching human beings sacrificed and thought it was the right thing. That's, that's what a Moabite is. So that makes this story even more of a miracle. Well, here's what happens. And it's going to, you're going to find it be rel very relevant to you here in a few minutes. 
what happens is that Naomi, the mom, her husband dies, and in time, the two sons die. That's what the book of Ruth tells us. So now you've got the mother, who's Hebrew, and the two Moabite daughters. And, and now what are they going to do? Now they got no men at that time. It wasn't just like, well, I'll just work my job. And, you know, I mean, it, it wasn't that way. If you lost the men at that time, you pretty much are losing the income. So starvation's facing them. And finally, we come down to a point where Naomi, the Hebrew mother, who is just devastated, hears that there's some relief back in Israel. And so she's going to leave her Moabite daughters in Moab. That, that would make sense, wouldn't it? You guys stay here. You worship your God. You hang with your people. I'm going back to Israel. You've never been there. You have no obligation. You're not married anymore. And there comes a moment in the first chapter of Ruth where a separation occurs, and it's one of the most powerful moments in the Bible. In fact, it will not look like it when I read it to you, but it's going to have implications on the rest of history. What happens right now, this conversation we're about to look at, changes history forever. And sometimes that's how, that's how it is. Let's hang on to that. In Ruth chapter 1 and verse 14, Naomi has turned to her daughters-in-law and said, or I guess technically ex-daughters-in-law, and said, uh, go, just stay with your people. I'm going back to Israel. And in verse 14, it says, at this, the girls, and their names were Orpah and Ruth, at this, the girls wept aloud again. And then Orpah kissed her mother-in-law goodbye. But Ruth clung to her. There are the key words. In fact, I'm very proud of myself. I've named the sermon. Orpah kissed, but Ruth clung. It's the best title I've ever put on a sermon. I'm just saying. <laughs> because it's right from the Bible. It's right there on the page. Orpah kissed her mother-in-law goodbye, but Ruth clung to her. Now, they're both Moabites. One makes a show of affection, but leaves. Another doesn't make any showy affection, just said, I'm not leaving. So Naomi, the mother-in-law, says, look. And by the way, that word in Hebrew means, you know, not just look, but like, idiot, pay attention. It's real strong. It's real strong. Your sister-in-law is going back to her people and her gods. Remember, what gods are we talking about? Gods you sacrifice babies to. Gods, you put wives in the fire if, if a certain sign of sacrifice has to be made. You kill people. Sometimes you drink their blood. That's not just in vampire movies. That's what they were doing at that time. So she's going back to her people. So go back, Naomi says. But Ruth replied, don't urge me to leave you or turn back from you. And watch what happens. We can't even figure out where this comes from. Where you go, I will go. And where you stay, I will stay. Your people will be my people, and your God will be my God. And where you die, I will die, and there I will be buried. May the Lord deal with me, be it ever so severely, if even death separates you and me. You have probably heard those words in wedding vows. Uh, they may be in other kinds of vows that are taken. I know some Christian fraternities and sororities that do all that kind of thing. Uh, and I, I got to tell you, that's how powerful these are. But remember, this is not just romantic love. This is between a mother-in-law and her daughter-in-law. This is just about covenant. It's about what we do. And let me tell you what I think has happened here. I think that Ruth has been living with this Hebrew family 
and she has glimpsed the ways of the living God. I believe that Ruth, you got to know, don't, let's, not, let's not clean Ruth up too quickly, right? Ruth has watched babies thrown into the fire and thought it was a righteous thing. She has watched human beings split open and put in the fire. She thought it was the right thing. She was raised in Moabite. Nobody's hiding that fact. She's probably had blood in some human blood in some kind of form. I mean, that's what they did. The Bible talks about it all the time. It's even called the abomination of the Moabs. It's referred to constantly in the Bible. It's not, not hidden at all. And that's who she is. And then she starts living with Naomi and her husband and her Hebrew sons. And I believe she glimpses the ways of God. I believe she sees a different way. I believe she lives in a family where they're not sacrificing human beings and they're keeping the feast and they're keeping the calendar and they're loving God and they're making the sacrifices the best they can in a foreign land. And she sees the ways of a different God. And that's why she said, I'm going to take on your God. Your God will be my God. Your people will be my people. Man, I love that. And then, doggone it if the little girl, I mean, she's not very old, if she doesn't begin to show us the nature of God in the way she keeps covenant. But let me tell you the key. Let me tell you the thing we're about to see, and, 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 then, and then I'm going to uh, start moving forward a little faster. The thing that we're about to see is that when Ruth clung to Naomi, she created what those of you in the military know as an LZ, a landing zone. If that's, if that's Naomi, and I'm Ruth, I know it's a stretch, but if I'm Ruth and that's Naomi, when, when Ruth said, I will, I will share your God, I will share your people, I'll make them mine, I'm clinging to you, I'm committed to you, I'm not going to kiss and walk away, I'm making a covenant with you. I am here and I'm not going anywhere. In the space between the two of them, I don't so much mean physically, but you understand what I'm saying. In the space between the two of them, she created a landing zone for the blessing of God. Because our God is a covenant-keeping God, and he honors covenants, and he looks for people. And he's moved, he's moved by this Moabite girl who has glimpsed in a foreign country the ways of Jehovah, and when everything has gone away, she looks up. The one sister-in-law, she kisses, she leaves. She looks at her, she got nothing. They got nothing. They got no men, they got no money, they got nothing. No land, nothing. Got to go back to a country they haven't been in in a decade and a half or two. And, and, and all of a sudden, here comes Ruth and just shocks us. And said, I am not leaving you. I'll, your people will be my people. Your God will be my God. May the Lord God, she makes a covenant with the Lord God, the new God, not Chemosh the idiot, but the Lord God, ruler of heaven and earth. Idiot's my favorite word for things I don't like. And so, so she may, if the, may the Lord deal with me severely, if even death separates us. That, that, that at that time was a commitment to camp by the grave of Naomi. I mean, that's a commitment. And you watch what happens now. It's as though that, that clinging, because Ruth clung, Whereas Orpah kissed and walked away. Ruth clung, and in that clinging, I believe she created, in a sense, you understand, in the invisible realm, a magnet for the blessing of God. Watch what happens. And by the way, I should probably tell you that this was the lowest time in Naomi's life. Naomi, this was horrible. In fact, Naomi takes Ruth, goes back to her people in Bethlehem in Israel, and when they say, hey, Naomi, we haven't seen you in a long time, she angrily and bitterly says, verse 20, don't call me Naomi. Don't call me Naomi. Call me Mara. 
it means bitterness. She says, watch this. Tell me if this person doesn't have issues. She says, because the Almighty has made my life very bitter. I went away full, but the Lord brought me back empty. It's quiet, isn't it? I, of course, have never said those words. I just want you to know, I have only said them 20 or 30,000 times. The Lord took me away full, but brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi? The Lord has afflicted me, and the Lord Almighty has brought misfortune upon me. She is devastated. She is bitter. She is empty. And keep in mind, that's when this ex-Moabite girl clings to her in a way that honors God. When Naomi has nothing to give back, the thing that's going to change things is the power of the clinging, the covenant. I'm here. May God be my witness. Lord, look upon us. We're not separating. We're not going away from each other. I will lay on her grave. We're standing before you. Here's an LZ for God. Land it. You follow what I'm saying? I don't know about you. I watch a lot of army movies. I kind of like that stuff. Grew up in the military. My favorite moment is when the guys are fighting in the jungle and they come out and there's an open space and usually the captain or somebody takes that grenade, that smoke grenade, and he's on the radio with the choppers and he pulls the pin and throws the smoke grenade and all of a sudden like red or green smoke or whatever starts filling that place and I start getting happy because someone's going to get on a chopper and go home and eat. I like that moment. That's the moment somebody says, land it here, baby. It's time for the rescue to begin. God looks at covenant that way. Come on, I love that. Now watch what happens. So Ruth goes back to Bethlehem with Naomi. Naomi is not exactly the most inspiring. This is not Joel Osteen at all. She is not inspiring. She doesn't have happy thoughts. She doesn't have a little humor at the beginning of the sermon. She doesn't have the hair. I'm just saying. Is, he's a buddy of mine. Leave me alone. He hasn't got Israel leading worship. You know what I'm saying? She's like walking home going, I am bitter and I am angry. Did I tell you that? I am bitter and I am angry. Nobody can repeat themselves like an angry, bitter, older woman. You know what I'm, what I'm saying? I'm just, I'm not picking on anybody. I'm just saying, I got relatives too. You know what I'm talking about. How you doing? Well, my arthritis is, no, I don't. I've been there. I love them all. Let's go to a movie. So Ruth walks out the covenant. She fulfills her commitment. She goes back to Bethlehem. She gets to work. She raises, gets food for Naomi. She meets the, the, the head guy of their tribe. He's impressed with her. She works, and God starts pouring stuff they need into, onto the LZ that's been created by Ruth clinging. And then Boaz, who is this head of the tribe, so to speak. I've got in my head, this is all Braveheart, but it's not really that way. Boaz speaks to her, and I think he's got supernatural insight into what's going on. Watch this. So, so Boaz, who is the, the tribal elder guy, has given her exceptional amounts of grain, and she, she says, she bows down with her face to the ground. I'm in, I'm in 210 if you're following me. And she asks him, why have I found such favor in your eyes that you notice me a foreigner? You know, of course, Moabites aren't the, aren't the people the Israelites are the happiest with in the whole world here. Boaz replies, I've been told all about what you have done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband. How you left your father and mother and your homeland and came to live with a people you did not know before. He knows the story. Watch this. May the Lord repay you for what you have done. May you be richly rewarded by the Lord, the God of Israel. Now listen, when the tribal head guy in Israel says, may the Lord God look down and bless you, little foreign, former demon-worshipping little girl, it's a moment. 
It's just a moment. But then he says, then he says, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. I thought she made a covenant with Naomi. I thought she went to work for Boaz. I thought she got grain, you know, on the edge of the field. It was all looking natural, but Boaz looks into the spirit and says, listen, let me tell you what's going on. You think you're just honoring your mother-in-law here, making a change, and I know it's a big thing. The wings of God beat over you. He is going to bless you because you have reflected his covenant-keeping heart. Come on. So it keeps on going. Boaz does what Boaz would do. He makes a deal. There's somebody waves a sandal and somebody brushes their hair. Whatever kind of things they've got going back then, throw stuff in the air. I don't know what it all was. I've studied it all for years. I don't, really, I don't have any more understanding. But here's what I like. Ruth 4 and verse 13, the blessing comes because Ruth made a landing zone for the blessing of God by clinging and not kissing and walking away. I'm going to say that over and over again. The best title I ever had. It's also the word of the Lord for a lot of us. She didn't kiss and make a display and then abandon. She stayed. So in verse, chapter, uh, chapter 4 and verse 13, it says, So Boaz took Ruth, and she became his wife. Let's not rush past this stuff. Little demon-worshipping former Moabite. I can't, I can't get rid of it. You know, I, I mean, it's not like she was just going to a church painted a different way here. She was putting babies in the fire. I mean, not her personally, but that was what she thought was right. She came into the covenant of Israel. She lived out the covenant of Israel. God began to bless her. Wings are flapping over her head from God. Now the tribal elder marries her. She becomes his wife. By the way, some of this language in Hebrew means this wasn't just obligatory. They were in love. And when he made love to her, Valentine's Day, I can read that. When he made love to her, the Lord enabled her to conceive, and she gave birth to a son. I mean, I could stop right there. It's amazing what's happened. They were starving yesterday, weren't they, or a few weeks ago? And she's with, you know, grandma who's bitter and empty and reminding everybody, you're right, and her arthritis and what have you. And then, and now she's, Ruth has married Boaz. She's wealthy. She's his wife. She's got a child. The women in the village of the community come to Naomi and said, praise be to the Redeemer. May your son become famous through Israel and all Israel. He will renew your life. And by the way, this isn't just, this isn't just done quietly in a church. This is that whole thing. I mean, they're, they are, you talk about celebrating. They've gone nuts, okay? They're dancing around. He'll be famous in Israel. He's going to whoop up on those guys, all that stuff. Watch this. He will renew your life and sustain you in your old age. For your daughter-in-law who loves you, who is better than seven sons. It's the women talking now, right? We don't need those sons. We got this awesome daughter-in-law, right? We got Ruth. You men stand back. She's equal to seven sons. Of course, it's the women talking, the men on the side going. <laughs> then Naomi took the child in her arms and cared for him. The women living there said, Naomi has a son, and they named him Obed, and he was father of Jesse and father of David. Okay, so where I want to park this right now is that history has been changed in Naomi's life because she clung in covenant 
and did not kiss and walk away. Because you can make the big display, you can do all the external stuff, but the clinging is the hard part. The covenant making is the hard part, but it creates an LZ. It creates a landing zone. And if little X demon worshiping, you'll never read the book of Ruth the same, will you? Ruth can come in, get clean, get blessed, and restore an entire family. And by the way, in a few minutes I'll show you, restore an entire nation to its purpose. That is the power of clinging and not making a show and watching, walking away. Nice, powerful stuff. Now, here's what I want you to know. Thank you. Here's what I want you to know. I purposely swallowed the last sentence. Because you see this child's name, Ruth's son's name is Obed. And I know how it is when we start reading these chronologies and these genealogies, our eyes roll back in our heads. And we say, Lord Jesus, is it possible to print a version of the Bible without the ephahs of this and the gophers of that and the begats? You know, especially when you're reading like in Chronicles in the first 17 chapters. People you'll never meet, you know. What is the point? But wait a minute. His name was Obed. His father was Jesse. Wait, who's next? Who's the father of David? The little demon-worshiping Moabite has gotten into the covenant. She's the grandma of the king in three generations. Wow. Because there is a redeemer. And that's who she's messing with. There is a Boaz and there's a Naomi and there's some emptiness and there's some bitterness and there's arthritis. But that's not who Ruth is dealing with. She's dealing with the redeemer of Israel. And he can take a little ex-demon worshiper and make her the grandmother of the king. Come on. But wait a minute. Wait a minute. As they say on TV commercials, there's more. If she's the grandma of David, then she's the great whatever to the Messiah, right? Because you bring it down to the New Testament. The little ex-demon worshiper. See how many times I can say that in the next five minutes is in the lineage of Jesus. What? The Messiah. It's like God threw a little hand grenade into the whole family line. You know what I'm talking about? You guys go to reunions, you know what I'm talking about. It doesn't fit. Here's all these noble guys and kings and so and so and so and so on. And then it says, Ruth, which in your Bible you ought to write, little demon worship and blah, blah, blah is in the lineage of the Messiah. Why? Why? Well, I'll tell you why. Because all throughout the Bible, all throughout the history of God's dealings with Israel, what is he trying to do? He's trying to say, I'm blessing you, Israel, but I'm not just blessing you for you. You are blessed to be a blessing. You are blessed for the nations. And the whole history of God's dealings with Israel, he's trying to get them to take his blessing and then take it to the nations of the world. 
Now he told Israel that the nations outside of Israel are unclean, so they got all haughty and stayed home in front of their big screen TV and their jacuzzis and their temple, and they hardly ever went out to other nations. And it infuriated God. It infuriated him. So I think one of the reasons that Ruth, little demon worshiper, my mobile, is in the lineage of the Messiah and in the lineage of David so that either Jew or Christian, either one, has to recognize that if God put the unclean from a foreign land into that lineage, he must be serious about reaching to the nations. He made that part of the bloodline of the king of Israel and the king of all the universe. I mean, come on. And what did it? What did it? Little Ruth, who watched her sister, some people say they're biological sisters, that was possible, watched Orpah, maybe she grew up with her, walk away. Rabbis say she took, she took 40 steps with her, with Naomi and left, and Ruth hung in. Now, I, I want to I just say to you for a moment, I told you earlier it was an important moment, because even though we don't hear about Orpah again in the Bible, there is reference to Orpah, this other sister who kissed and walked away, in the literature just outside the Bible that the rabbis preserved. So we know a little something, or at least we think we do, as much as we can be sure about anything in history, about Orpah. She left Naomi when Ruth clung. She went back to the Moabite people. She participated in these sacrifices I've now made a big thing out of. She, she was part of the uncleanness, and she had a son in fact, she had a number of sons. And many, many rabbinic sources tell us that her son was named Goliath. And that she was known for giving birth to a family of monsters, which is what he was. And there's a rabbinic source that I like, even if it's not true. I'm going to tell it like it is. Because <laughs> I like the fact this rabbinic source has got David and Goliath on the battlefield. And, and they know that they are, what would they be, cousins? Sons of two sisters? Yeah, they're, they're cousins. So Southern style, he goes, cuz? And there's a conversation after David has hit Goliath with the rock. And he's gone to get the sword. And he says, almost literally, I don't have it memorized, your sister, and then he uses the Hebrew word for my aunt. I mean, the whole thing's become a family feud suddenly. My aunt walked away, but my grandmother clung. They're like great cousins, aren't they? Anyway, it doesn't matter. And he says, now her vengeance is here and cuts off Goliath's head. And I like a cartoon that I kept in my office for a lot of years. It's David and sitting in front of a fire in a rocking chair and Goliath's head mounted over his mantle because that's kind of what happened. Orpah kissed and walked away and became the grandmother or the mother of Goliath. It'd have to be the grandmother of Goliath. Ruth becomes the grandmother of the king of Israel who slays the fruit of Orpah's kissing and walking away. Broken covenant. Now, here's what I love. I love the fact that in true Hebrew style, this story is told every generation. In fact, you could not be a rabbi 
without memorizing the entire genealogy of David as far as it had come to your generation. So every rabbi, and then eventually when you come into the New Testament, every Christian minister in the early church had to memorize that lineage. And don't you know they all stumbled over Ruth until they made peace with it. And the remembering became an impartation of its own. This is what I want you to hear. You see, almost all the good things that we're all walking is because somebody clung to what God had called them to cling to. Somebody was faithful where others kissed and walked away. Somebody hung in and observed the commitments of God. And when, that, when that's true and it comes down through the generations, it has an impartation. So I like the fact we're having to hear the story today because I, didn't, I never threw a child into a fire to worship demons, but I did other stuff and so did you. And the fact is that we're dealing with a kinsman redeemer and, and a God over, who has wings flapping over our heads before we even fully know who he is. And then he starts to redeem and bring things back. So the remembering has an impartation to it. That's why we've got to remember these things. Now, I want to take a slight turn, but I'm still the same place. You in this room, almost all of us, have got someone in our background, or maybe a number of people, who were the Ruths when many people were the Orpahs. The Ruths hung in. The Ruths prayed when nobody was praying. The Ruths were generous. The Ruths made covenant. The Ruths did the job they needed to do. And you're descended, probably almost all of us, whether we know it or not, are in some way descended from some Ruth in our family line who hung in there and changed the history of our family. I have that. You have that. You know, we all talk about our grandmas who prayed us all into the kingdom or great-grandpas or, you know, what, what have you. And if you'll allow me just for a moment, I want to talk to you specifically about the impartation of heritage that comes from uh, what I consider the greatest line from the Lion King, remember who you are. I want us not just to rehearse the natural part of our history. Fine, that's got its place. But I want us to know who we are and to remember who we are. And especially, if I may separate myself from you for just a moment, you're my church family, but I separate myself from you just a moment because I don't know if you noticed, I'm not black. You are black and I'm not. But I lecture on African-American history. I teach it to, I've taught at Tuskegee and so on. I'm not trying to give you my resume. I got to tell you, I got to burn to make sure that I don't know more about black history in America than you do and your kids do. Do you follow what I'm saying? Because if we don't tell our story, no one else is going to be the caretaker of that story. And if we don't tell our story, then somebody else is going to define us. Do you follow what I'm saying? I want the young black kids in this church to so know who they are in Christ and by virtue of being a Jones or a Smith or a Perkins or what have you, that it doesn't matter if the one, run with me now, the one racist cop out of 100,000 good ones that they happen to meet can taint them permanently and damage their life. No, they know who they are even if they're dealing with a particular idiot who's a racist. You follow what I'm saying? I didn't go after cops. I didn't go after cops. This room is filled with cops. I mean, we got every, we got Secret Service, we got FBI, we got my best friend here. Look at him. He's right there. He's armed. He's going to come up here and get me. I'm just saying, you know, I wouldn't go after cops. I'm, that's not what I'm doing. But you know in every profession there are some nitwits, right? In every profession there are some racists. What I want is that we can withstand it because we know who we are. So you've got to tell them. You've got to tell them what they need to know. You've got to tell them that the man who carried the cross with Jesus 
was a man whose name was Simeon, and he was an African. You've got to tell him that. You've got to tell your kids that. They've got to know that. They've got to know that in Acts 13, while Israel, well, I'm sorry, while in the church in Jerusalem was trying to figure out if the Gentiles could be saved and having a big conference about it, at Antioch, they were getting the Gentiles saved. And one of the elders leading that movement was the man the Bible says had the name black man. It's actually on the text. It doesn't, there's, no, there's no question about that. We don't know where he's from. He's black. Why does it matter? Because it means that Christianity is not about a white Jesus with a whiter sheep under his arm and a white bathrobe. That there's color in there. Jesus was more your color than mine. Does it matter? I didn't think it mattered. I didn't think I'd have to say black lives matter in this generation. And I don't know anything about political movements. I'm not going for that. I'm just saying, of course, every life matters. Why did we even have to bring that up? You follow what I'm saying? Because somebody said the opposite. You don't get nervous now. Don't get nervous. I'm not about to run for office or something. Okay. I'm just trying to tell you what we got to remember, all right? I want, us, I want them to know this. I want them to know it because you tell it. And you cannot leave it to other people to tell these stories. The schools, bless them, they do the best they can. We've got lots of school teachers in here. They do the best they can, but they can't tell your, your, your unique ethnic history. They can't tell your family history. You've got to rehearse those things so they know who they are, all right? I, I, want, I want them to know that the church fathers, some of the major church fathers were Africans, some we know to have black skin, like Augustine, Tertullian, Athanasius, Origen. These are some of the major church fathers who set the theological direction of the church, and they didn't live in London. Do you follow what I'm saying? They lived somewhere else. I'm having fun picking on the British too. I get it all in at one time. I want them to know that the first blacks uh, to come to what is now the United States were not slaves. They were indentured servants, which is the same way almost all whites came at that time. They were indebted to somebody and had to pay it off. We even know their names, Pedro, Isabella, and Antony. They earned their freedom. Antony ended up only owning 250 acres in the Chesapeake region and having all kinds of slaves, Native American black and white slaves. That's something they don't tell in the textbooks. And, and actually, his descendants ran for office and held public office. You didn't read that in the textbook? Well, let me keep going. Uh, there, is a, there is a guy named Matthias de Souza. Hardly anybody here will know his name, but why do I need him? He's the first African-American uh, actual uh, state office holder in American history. Did it happen in 8, 1956? No, it happened in 1641 before slavery even arose. We don't know that story because they don't tell us. In a year, I don't want us to be waiting for them to tell us. I want us to know it ourselves because the remembering has an impartation. Do you follow what I'm saying? That's the whole point of Ruth is that the remembering has an impartation. I want them to know who Crispus Attucks is. My favorite black man in history, well, maybe, is Crispus Attucks because he's the first man to die in the American Revolution. A British guard shot him. Crispus Attucks was a big black sailor, grabbed the gun, turned it around, and hit the guy with it and killed him. I just like it. I like the fact, I like the fact that they shot him and made him mad. And he grabbed the gun and did his thing. He's the first, I'm, I know I'm having fun, but he's the first man to die in the American Revolution. Crispus Attucks. Your kids need to know that. My kids need to know that. John Mercer Langston is the first black man to be admitted to the bar and to practice law. When did it happen? 1963? No, 1854. Six years 
before the American Civil War. Don't let them tell you otherwise. The first woman to, get a, to be a patent holder in America was an African-American woman by the name of Judy Reed. When did that happen? 1992? No, 1884. I'm not saying they lied to us. I'm saying they didn't know. We can't rely on them to tell us. I like a guy named Jack Johnson. Some of you know right away who I'm talking about. First African-American man to hold the world heavyweight champion boxing title in 1908. Held it till 1915. Even Muhammad Ali didn't hold it that consistently. And I love George Washington Carver. Who squeezed more revelation out of a peanut than ought to be legal. 300 patents. You've got his patents in your house. You don't even know it's made from a peanut or that George Washington Carver had anything to do with it. 300 patents. By the way, you know how he'd do it? He'd walk out into his, what is it, peanut field or peanut garden. I don't know anything. You can tell how, what an idiot I am. And, 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 he, and he said, Jesus, what's next? And the next thing you know, he was like creating gasoline from cars from the peanut. I'm telling you, this is, this is the way it goes. And if your kids don't know who May Jemison is, you know who Mae Jemison is? Anybody here know who Mae? She's the first black astronaut. It's Dr. Mae Jemison. Well, I'm not done. If you, if you have a pacemaker, don't raise your hand. If you have a pacemaker, <laughs> we'll ask you to raise your hand for some things. That's not one of them. If you've been treated for bacteria by medicine, if you have had a blood transfusion, especially if you've had blood, uh, separated blood uh, that you've given or received, if you've taken steroids, not for bodybuilding like Sean, but for medical reasons, <laughs> if you've had open heart surgery, you can thank Dr. Otis Boykin, Dr. Emmett Chappelle, Dr. Charles Dew, Dr. Percy Julian, Daniel Hale Williams, all of them black, all of them African-American. All of them eminent scientists changed the world. In fact, the bus port you use on your computer was created by a black man and stolen by Apple. I'm just saying, no. <laughs> and I can't go on forever. I can't go on forever here, but I haven't even mentioned the famous ones. Martin Luther and Coretta Scott's King, W.E.B. Du Bois, Booker T. Washington, Shirley Chisholm, my guys, I love them, the Tuskegee Airmen. I'm not sure which movie is right. I like them both. Uh, Jackie Robinson, Thurgood Marshall, Colin Powell, and Barack Obama. Do not play politics with me. I'm just glad a black man got to the presidency. And here's, here's what I like. Here's my favorite. I grew up mainly in Europe and then in places like Texas and Oklahoma. So I've seen a lot of John Deere trailers, uh, tractors, a lot of John Deere, right? I mean, you just see it out there. And John Deere world is, it's just, it's old white guy world. I'm just telling you, you got to be wealthy, you got to be white, and you got to plow. It's not like the Chinese have taken over John Deere. You follow what I'm saying? I mean, it's a basically, you know, you guys know I like to play and I'm not being insulted. It's, kind of, it's Crackerville. It is old Southern white guys. It just is. My relatives, all my relatives. I, I, who knows? The first African-American to own a John Deere dealership, J.C. Watts, who goes to this church, by the way. J.C., are you here? Are you here, J.C.? I don't care if you're embarrassed. Stand up. <laughs> Come on. I mean, I mean, he didn't go into the traditional African-American realms. He went to Crackerville and bought a John Deere dealership. I'm sorry, I'm not just saying it because he's my friend. It's because I love that kind of stuff. I could go on for an hour. What's my point? Not to just have a, cheer, a rally session, although I'm always happy to do it on this subject. The remembering has an impartation. 
The remembering has an impartation. Pastor Brett's told me that he's had humiliating moments as an African-American man in front of whatever authority figures. Okay. Why did he crush him? Because he knows who he is. Knows who he is in Jesus. Knows who he is as an African-American man. Knows who his ancestors were. Knows what he's about. I'm not just talking about clinging to his faith, although that's great. He's also clinging to a purpose of God that continues from generation to generation. Because you know what? He had a Ruth in his background. I happen to know JC's story enough to know. He had Ruth's in his background. And he hasn't been crushed. He's had the same kind of thing happen. I mean, you, sh- you should read some of his books. Amazing. The, the stuff that he's had to deal with. He'd be famous and followed around the, the department store because he might be stealing stuff. You know what I'm saying? Just silly stuff. You know what I'm talking about. We can, if we can't be blunt in church, where can we be blunt? I'm not, my point is just one thing. My point is really one thing, and they both fold into it. We cling to the covenants and the commitments that God has given us. It creates a landing zone for the grace of God. And then that grace pours in not just one generation, but in the retelling generation after generation after generation after generation. And that's why we're here. So cling Do not kiss and leave on Valentine's Day. I'm about 2% of pastor on this church. I bless you to do a lot of kissing today, all right? But also remember who you are. I love you.